Good afternoon. Please open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We were in Judges. Just turn one more page. We're just going to continue that thought with the book of Ruth. You know, I was thinking, if you had a mortal enemy, just someone that you despised, and, and you wanted to really put them through torture, one thing that you could do is you could orchestrate a way for them to stand in front of a lot of people and read a genealogy in the Bible. Amen, brother. Sorry, Brother Mike, you're not an enemy. Um, it's difficult. But, and I, I even apologized to him ahead of time before the service, I'm sorry I'm making you do this. But it's, it's important because one r- name that you heard read was in a list, in a sea, a multitude of men. There was a few women, weren't there? And one of the women that was read was Ruth, this beautiful story of Ruth. In fact, the book is entitled The Book of Ruth, and it's remarkable that the book is entitled Ruth for a couple reasons. One reason is that it is the only book in the entire Old Testament canon that is named after a non-Israelite, a Gentile. The book uh, emphasizes this point because all throughout the book, um, most of the time when Ruth is mentioned by the author, she is called Ruth the Moabitess, being from Moab. Another reason that it's curious, this name, is because the book is not centrally only about Ruth. It's not even mainly about Ruth. There are three main characters in the story. There's Ruth, of course. She is one of the main characters. There's also her mother-in-law, Naomi, and the man, Boaz. But of these three main characters, Ruth, of the three, speaks the least of the three. Some have said this could have easily been called the book of Boaz, and no one would have thought it was ill-named. could have been called the book of Naomi. Certainly in this first chapter, it is mostly about Naomi and her story. And yet, it is entitled Ruth, and that gives us uh, a picture of what the author intended with this book. He had a special place, a special affinity for this woman. In our Bibles, the book of Ruth comes directly after the book of Judges. And uh, we, we see in the very first verse, it says, "...in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land." So in the very same days of the book of Judges that we just got through studying about, in those days, in that same time period, perhaps you've been thinking as we've been studying through uh, the book of Judges, the 21 chapters, maybe your mind has went where mine has went, which is, is there anyone at all faithful? does, Does the Lord have any faithful remnant in this time period? This lengthy time period in Israel's history. And when we get to the book of Ruth, we, f- we discover, well, maybe there was someone. Maybe there was at least a family. Maybe there were a few people. And the Lord's did have a remnant. It is interesting that all of this story, it's remarkable, happens during the time period of the Judges. Some of the Masoretic Hebrew uh, manuscripts place Ruth... At the end, or right after, in their canon, in their order of the books, they place Ruth right after Proverbs. 
And what's interesting is it shows us what the Jews saw Ruth as because they placed her there. Because what is at the very end of the book of Proverbs? Proverbs chapter number 31, the virtuous woman. And so it is likely that they placed the book of Ruth there because that is who they saw as the exemplar of the virtuous woman that you find in Proverbs 31. You go from reading Proverbs 31 and the virtuous woman and the very next chapter you read of this woman, Ruth. I want to give you the main thought or main purpose of the book of Ruth as we begin. There's only four short chapters for this entire story. Where is the author going with the story? The main thought is to explain how in the providence of God, the divinely chosen King David would emerge from the dark period of the judges. To explain in the providence of God, how could God allow or cause King David to emerge from the dark period of the judges that we've just studied, where we would say, Has, is there anyone left that is righteous in all of Israel? In order to preserve this idea of Ruth coming from nobility, the Jews had a tradition. Now, this is nowhere in Scripture. We don't know if this is true at all. But in Jewish tradition, they said that Ruth was the daughter of King Eglon. Do you remember King Eglon? He was the infamously fat king. You remember in Judges chapter number 3, the fat king, King Eglon. Well, in Jewish tradition, Ruth was his daughter. In order to preserve this idea that King David, remember this whole book is about his kingship. Where is King David coming from? Well, we don't know if Ruth was from royalty or not. Perhaps she was the daughter of this fat king, King Eglon. I would say one critique of that view is that it seems clear throughout the book of Ruth that the emphasis is not on her genealogy being her reason for nobility, but her strength of character being the source of her nobility. Let's begin in verse number one and see the misery. The misery. Verse number one, the Bible says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, so, excuse me, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the misery that we find the problem of the book of Ruth is given here. Now remember, this entire story of the book of Ruth happens in the time period of Israel that we just learned about. Look at the very last verse of Judges. The very last verse of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the time period that Ruth 
found herself in, when there was no king in Israel. Yet it happens in the very town. Do you, you remember the town? In verse number one, it says that the man is from Bethlehem in Judah. The very town where perhaps Israel's greatest king would be reared, King David. And also the king of kings and the Lord of lords would be born here in the town of Bethlehem. Here where in the days where there is no king in Israel, there's a man named Elimelech. That name Elimelech means my God is the king. My God is the king in the time when there is no king in Israel. Well, this man, Elimelech, has two sons, Malon and Kilion. Their names are, I've heard, you've heard some modern names where you scratch your head. Um, I've heard some pretty terrible names. But Malon and Kilion, their names could be translated sickly and skinny. Sickly and skinny. Now remember, they were born in a time of famine. Perhaps their mother and their father named them that because they were sickly and skinny because they couldn't provide for them. They didn't know if they would even survive this famine. One translator said that their names could have been, their names could have been translated weakling and wasting away. Weakling and wasting away. These two boys, imagine the state of despair you must be in to name your offspring, your two boys, weakling and wasting away, sickly and skinny. And yet, where is this famine happening? It's happening in the place where God promised that they would go, the land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, this famine is happening specifically in the town of Bethlehem. Beth meaning house and Lehem meaning of food or of bread, the house of bread. This famine is happening in the house of bread. If we remember in Deuteronomy chapter number 28, the Lord gave His covenant promises. Covenant promises of blessing. But then also in chapter 28, He gives the curses for disobedience. I will be your God and you will be my peace people. You will go to the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, if you do not follow me, if you do not serve me, there will be curses given to you for your disobedience. It says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come. And he lists curse after curse after curse. One of the curses that the Lord lists is, he says, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever. That sounds like sickly and skinny. Inflammation and a fiery heat and with drought and with blight. And the heavens over your head shall be as bronze. And the earth under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From the heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. This land flowing with milk and honey, this house of bread that the Lord had promised them, if they did not follow him, then it would, be it would be a curse to them. The land would become dust. The heavens would be like bronze, empty, no rain whatsoever. The ground beneath them would be like iron. Nothing is going to grow on iron. And so 
what did this family, this Elimelech and Naomi, what did they decide to do at this time of famine? Well, they decided to seek to take provision that God provides apart from the repentance that God requires. We find that this famine is localized. This isn't a problem all throughout this area. This is specifically a problem for Israel. We know that because Elimelech leads his family away from Israel into Moab. Now, why in the world would he go to Moab other than the fact that there was, fa- there was food there? There was relief from this famine. You see, he was seeking provision from the Lord that the Lord could give without the repentance that the Lord required. This famine should have been an obvious sign to them that they needed to repent of their sin. They needed to return to the Lord so that he would restore their lands to be flowing with milk and honey as he had promised to do to them, to do for them. But instead of turning back to the Lord, he led his family in turning their backs on the Lord. They went to Moab. It says in verse number four that they went to Moab for 10 years that they were there. But it says that they went to sojourn in Moab, in verse number one. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. This word sojourn simply meant, in his mind, that he was going to travel there for a little while. I'm sure in Elimelech's mind and Naomi's mind, as they reasoned with one another, we're going to pick up our family and we're going to leave the promised land of God, the place, the only place in all of creation where God has promised to bless his people with provision, with protection. This is the land and we're going to leave that place to go to pagan enemy territory. How could they decide that they're going to do this? Often, we rationalize our, our sin, and sometimes we can rationalize our sin so to the point where we think it's a good idea and we even think it's the best move for our family. Can you imagine rationalizing and thinking that you should leave the promised land of God and take your little children and your family and your wife and go move into pagan territory, enemy territory, and it's going to be fine? Well, they reasoned with each other and they said, well, we're just going to sojourn there. We're just going to be there for a little while. It could be a few months until this famine lets up. And then we'll go back. I don't think Elimelech thought for a second that he would end up in Moab for 10 years. That he would die in pagan territory. And that his two sons would marry pagan wives and they would die in pagan territory. Our drift into compromise and sin is usually just like that. It keeps us longer than we want to stay. We can rationalize our sin because this is just what our family needs to do for the foreseeable future. We just have to get over this hurdle. This is just something, I know that this isn't what God has intended for us, but it's just something that we have to do to get through this difficult time. I mean, my son's name's Sickly and Skinny. I don't even know how I'm going to feed them. We're going through famine. We have to put food on the table. We just have to do this for a little while. 
And a little while of sojourning turns into 10 years and the end of your life and the end of your children's lives. Because sin always requires more than we are willing to pay. We rationalize the drift because it will just be temporary, just for a little while. And then we can return to faithfulness. Beware of temporary driftings because they usually end up in permanent situations. Temporary driftings usually end up in permanent situations. And that's what Elimelech found himself in. Then we get to the story of the Moabitess, the Moabitess, from the misery to the Moabitess. Let's look at verse number six. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set them, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. What a beautiful story. Is Naomi here trying to convince Ruth to turn to her pagan ways? To return to her pagan ways? Just to be a pagan? No, in verse number 9. Naomi is wishing her the best. Look at verse number 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's not telling her to return to the house of their former husbands, the ones that have died. She's saying, I wish you blessing. You're still young. We can assume, the, their ages aren't given here, but we could assume in this time period, if they were married, very likely between the ages of 15, maybe 20 would be much older it's very different than our culture today, but let's just say that they were married to these young men between the ages of 15 and 20, then 10 years later, they would be young women between the ages of 25 and 30. 
Naomi is saying, you're still young. You can still find another husband. Go back to your land and find a husband because I wish you well. I wish you blessing. I don't wish this curse upon you to be the, the curse that is upon me. You see, Naomi has lost all hope for any future progeny. With her husband and with her two sons, died her, her future has died. She has no hope of grandchildren, no hope for a future line. And the author of this book, remember, the point of this book is to show us how the rise of King David will happen in the dark time of the judges. So every reader should be thinking, how is King David going to come from this mess? Naomi is simply wishing the best for Ruth. Go find a husband so that your fate is not the same as mine. You can have children. So return. It's interesting, this great relationship of this mother-in-law and her two daughters-in-law. They, they both loved her dearly. Even the one that left loved her dearly. She wept and she kissed her. She did not want to leave her. But she left at the idea that I could possibly at least have a, have a husband and a future if I go back to my land. And so Orpah goes back home. What a beautiful picture of this in-law relationship that they had. I thought to myself this week, what was the happiest couple that has ever lived in all of the, in all of the history of mankind? The happiest couple ever to live. And I think definitively we could say the happiest couple to ever live was Adam and Eve. Because they did, neither one of them had in-laws. Neither one of them did. I kind of think of mother-in-laws like turkey. I'm, I'm fine with it just at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know. Don't need it throughout the rest of the year. That's all the only time I need it. No, I'm just joking. I love, I love my mother-in-law. But the reason these jokes are funny, the reason why there's a stereotype of a mother-in-law and it being a negative thing, well, there is a reason for that, right? And yet, this is something that as I have children that are growing up, um, something that grieves me deeply, something that Candace and I have talked about much, that we hope that we can be a blessing as in-laws, as, as parents-in-law. Imagine the blessing that Naomi was for these two young women, completely different cultures, an Israelite mother-in-law with two Moabite women. And they, they want to go with her instead of their own mother. Their husbands are dead and gone. The father-in-law is dead and gone, and they want to follow her. What a blessing she must have been to them. What a beautiful picture of this relationship that Christians can and should have. This question that Naomi gives, this pushing back that Naomi has, uh, Sinclair Ferguson suggests that Naomi is not pushing Ruth back to pagan territory so that she can continue to be a pagan. Could it be that Naomi is making it clear to Ruth the cost of her discipleship. What it will cost Ruth to become a Christian. What it will cost Ruth to follow Naomi back to worship Yahweh. 
and no, no longer the gods of the Moabites. Do you remember the rich young ruler that went up to Jesus and asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus told him, you have to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And Jesus knew his heart that this man was wealthy. And he knew that the cost of following Christ was much for this wealthy young man. It's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's sad. The gospel that is predominantly preached today is a gospel of easy believism. That all you have to do is come forward after a pastor preaches a sermon and pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. And you can go, from that point on, you can live however you want to live. You can go and do everything that everybody else does, but since you prayed a magical prayer at the end of your life, you're saved. You can never follow Christ. You can never take up your cross and follow Him and become a disciple and a follower of Christ, but yet you can still somehow have Christ. It seems here that Naomi is preaching to Ruth the cost of her discipleship. I cannot promise you a husband. I cannot guarantee you riches. I cannot guarantee you a future. We will have the Lord and His grace, and that might be all that we have. That is the only thing that we are guaranteed. Many of you might be familiar with the Hebrew concept in, in Hebrew literature where in their literature they would repeat a word and that would emphasize the importance of the word. Perhaps the clearest example of that would be holy, holy, holy. Holy to the third power. Emphasizing God's holiness. Well, in Hebrew literature, many times the author would emphasize a point that he's trying to make with a repetition of a word and that's happening in this chapter. Maybe you missed it in the English because in the English... The English uses different words, which I think makes it easier to read because if we use the same word in grammar class and writing papers, I've always been taught, if you can change the word, it makes it not so monotonous. So maybe that's what we're doing here. But in the Hebrew, it's the same word that's used 12 times between verses 6 through 22. The word for return is used. In verse 6, return. Verse 7, return. Verse 8, return. Verse 10, return. Verse 11, it says turn back in the ESV, but it's the same word. Verse 12, turn back again. Same word, return. Verse 15, gone back. And actually, verse 15, it says it twice. Gone back and return. It's the same word in Hebrew. Verse 16, return. Verse 21, brought me back. That's the word, return. And then in verse 22, the very last verse, it says it twice in the, in the same verse. Returned, Naomi returned, and then they returned from the country of Moab. This word returned is emphasized. And the Hebrew reader would be very familiar with the Old Testament concept of returning. It's a covenantal word that was returning back to the Lord. I'll give you just two examples of this. Where the same word is not translated in the English as return. It's translated as repented. And I could give you many, many more examples. I'll just give you two. Ezekiel chapter 14, 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, repent. It's the same word, return. Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away from your faces from all your abominations. That's this word that's repented, shuv, in the Hebrew, return. Psalm 78, 34. They repented, they returned, and sought God earnestly. 
The word here that this author is using in this very first chapter is pointing us to the main verse in the chapter. The confession of Ruth. All this word is pointing us to this main confession that we find. Ruth is using covenantal language to Naomi. Her confession of faith is found in verses 16 and 17. Did it sound familiar, the language that she uses? Look at verse number 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me, if you continue down particularly, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Does that sound familiar? The Lord tells his people, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. This statement that Ruth makes is nothing short of a profession of faith in the God of Israel. I will no longer serve Chemosh, the God of the Moabites. I pledge my allegiance. I pledge my, my faith is placed in the God of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that brings us to the matriarch in verse 19. The matriarch of the chapter, which is of course Naomi. Verse number 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here we get a picture of Naomi, this, the matriarch. We find a picture of her theology. And I must say that her theology is a lot better than most today. I've even brought up the example of Naomi and her testimony here at the end of this chapter to Arminians who don't view the sovereignty of God in the same way that we do. And I've said, well, what, what, what do you do with this? How, how do you read the faithful testimony of this woman who is grieving, who is saying that the events that happened to her, the death of her husband, the death of her two sons, she is not blaming that on the famine or on random occurrences or natural events, she's saying that this has come from the hand of the Lord. And I must say that she interprets, she interprets God's providence correctly. Some might say, well, the Lord deals sovereignly for, this is the line of king, this is the line of King David. So the Lord is dealing sovereignty for that line because he must preserve it. That's why he dealt that way with Joseph. And he said, I meant it for good. They meant it for evil. The Lord steps in to creation and he works sovereignly in certain instances, in key big picture moments. That's when the Lord works in this way. But he doesn't work in our lives that way. Well, how depressing is that? Um, I don't want to face this world and the horrific things that we have to face, the tragedy and the loss, the difficulty that sin brings. 
without God being in control of all of it. Her name means pleasantness. Good to the taste. It was pleasant. And she said, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Bitter. But I don't believe that she's saying that she is bitter against the Lord. And I don't believe that she's saying that God has made her a, an old bitter woman. Don't believe that's what she's saying. I believe this is simply her translating, her interpreting her life's events and saying that the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. She's had a bitter existence. The events of her life have been bitter to taste and difficult to swallow. Imagine you've lost your husband. Ten years later, you lose both of your sons. And now you have no one. So you just return back home because it's, you might know some people there. So you go back home. God's bitter providence, they can be incredibly difficult and trying. Imagine waking up, uh, walking up upon a man who had a sharp knife in his hand. And as you walked up on him, you witnessed him brutally cutting down the sternum and into the chest cavity of another man. This sharp knife in the hands of a sociopath can be a weapon for gruesome cruelty. Can you imagine the, the gruesomeness of that? And yet... Now imagine that what you walked up on was not a sociopath with a taste of blood, but he was a surgeon that was performing emergency surgery to save a man that was in danger. You see, a sharp knife can be wielded in violence with the purpose of destruction, but it can equally be wielded in violence for the purpose of healing. The same violence... The same very difficult thing to watch, and yet one is meant for evil, and the other is meant for good. God's bitter providences can be something like that in our life. What others mean for evil, He means for good. Christian, if you aren't going through these bitter providences right now, there's not much that's guaranteed us in this life, but that is that we will go through them eventually. What we must constantly preach to our souls is that God is working together all of these things for our good. How can she look and see her dead husband and the caskets, the burial grounds of her two sons and have nothing left? And see that God means it for good. How? And yet, this story teaches us that there is a bright glimmer of hope amidst this dark, dark time. Naomi also teaches us another lesson about reading into the bitter providences of God. Because most often we interpret these difficult, bitter providences of God too narrowly. Some might, like the, like the friends of Job, some might come to Naomi and say, well, the reason that this has happened to you is because of your sin. You abandon the Lord. And they may be correct. That might be part of the reason why. 
the consequences of their sin have met them. That could be true, but that is not all of the picture, is it? That isn't the entire picture that we get with Naomi. They leave, they abandon the Lord, they go to Moab, and because of that, the Lord strikes them down into the story. That's why that happened? No, we find out why that happened. God's ultimate plan in His providence with Naomi and her family is not merely punitive punishment. It's not just judicial punishment for turning their backs. But we can view bitter providences as much bigger than that. God's plan is through a mysterious intermingling of His providential control over history. The Lord purposes to reach through Naomi's life and to bring about the salvation of Ruth, her daughter-in-law. If none of this happens, perhaps Ruth never converts to the Lord to follow Yahweh. And also, spoil alert, it's happening in the next few chapters. The entire theme and message of this book is that in time, in the time that there was no king in Israel, God is going to have a Moabitess, pagan, converted to Christianity, and she is going to be a mother to the nation. From her womb, a king will come. This is the glimmer of light in the darkest of times. From famine to faith. May the Lord bring his church through the famine and to the house of bread by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how good it is, how nourishing it is for our soul. Lord, we pray that you would convince us of the truths found in your word. If there are some who have turned their backs on you instead of turning back to you, Lord, we pray that tonight they would take a step back towards you. And you are faithful to draw nigh to all those who draw nigh to you. Lord, we pray that you would build your kingdom and grow our faith. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.